Uh, as Steph said uh, earlier, my name is Chris. I'm one of the communicators here at Beyond, and we are so glad that you're with us tonight. Uh, if this is new or if this is your first time, you're coming in on the tail end of a series. This is the last part of a series that we've been doing called Skin in the Game. Uh, and if you have no idea what a series is, if you don't know what that looks like in a church context, you know what How I Met Your Mother looks like, you know what Suits looks like, you know what uh, House of Cards looks like, but you're like, what does a series look like in a church? Really what we do is we want to have a long conversation, so we chunk it down into a number of uh, 20-minute pieces, and we have it over a number of weeks, package it together. Hi, Sienna, how are you doing? It's great to see you. Yeah, you were helping me earlier, weren't you? <laughs> we package it together, and uh, we put it together, we give it a cool series, and, uh, and a name, and then we go on from there. Uh, and really the big idea with this series is that as followers of Jesus, we're not called to go to church, we're called to be the church. And maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, okay, well, that's, that's great, but I'm not really a follower of Jesus. In fact, I, I wouldn't even, I don't even know if this Jesus guy is all he's cracked up to be. I'm kind of just got some questions I want to find some answers to. And maybe you're on the journey of faith a little bit. You're just kind of exploring. And that is okay, because this, really this series and what this means for you, if you would say, I'm not really a follower of Jesus, is you can put your feet up, you can sit back, and you can relax. We're not going to ask you for money. We're not going to ask you to do anything. We're not, none of what we're really talking about tonight applies to you. Everything that we're talking about tonight applies to followers of Jesus. But, but if you're here tonight and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is a great opportunity for you to kind of have a front row seat to a group of followers of Jesus talking about what it actually means to be the church. Because for so many of us, for so long, maybe we've thought the church is a building, a place that we come to at a specific time, at a specific place, and maybe you don't even know what they do in there, but you just know it's weird, it's not really your thing, it's irrelevant. Maybe you thought people dressed up in like white gowns and had the dog collars, or people like carrying crosses with candles, and it smelt funky, like you didn't even really know. And so this is an opportunity for you to kind of get a front row seat as we wrap up this series talking about what it means not to go to church, but to be the church. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give us a quick rundown of where we've been the last two weeks. And if any of this um, kind of sparks your interest, you can jump onto our, our Facebook page is the best uh, place and you can find the link on there to our SoundCloud and you can listen to parts one and two later. But really, in part one of this series, we, we started unpacking the idea that the church was never intended to be a meeting. It was always intended to be a movement. Church was never supposed to be a place that we come to and it was never supposed to be thought about as a location. It was always supposed to be known as the people. And it was always supposed to be known as people who were working towards a specific idea or a specific mission. That was what the church was always supposed to be known about. And then last week we kind of looked at a letter that was written. Uh, a letter that was written by a guy called Paul who used to kill Christians for a living until he became one. And once Paul became a Christian, he started planting churches around the Mediterranean Rim. And Paul started a church in the city of Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. And last week, we looked at a letter that Paul wrote to that church. And just in case you sort of thought, um, well, there's a lot of kind of dodgy things going on in the church today. The church doesn't have the most stellar reputation. Paul wrote this letter to the earliest of, uh, one of the earliest churches. And the, the stuff that goes on today in the church... Uh, made this, like, this church, uh, what am I doing? I'm kind of confusing my words. Uh, this church, uh, the church today would have just looked like the golden boy. The church today would have looked like the golden boy compared to this church 2,000 years ago because Paul, in the parts of this letter, he said to the church, um, can you guys stop having sex with some of the temple prostitutes? 
Corinth was like a city that was, uh, the, the main temple in there was the temple of Aphrodite. At one point, there was a thousand temple prostitutes in the temple of Aphrodite, and these people kind of became followers of Jesus, but then weren't, wasn't, they weren't really sure what it looked like to live that out. And so then they kind of went back, and Paul goes, no, no, stop doing that. Like, you can't do that. And then there's a meal, Steph talked about it, that followers of Jesus share. It's called communion. And Paul had got word that some of the followers of Jesus were enjoying themselves a little too much on the communion wine, a little too regularly. And so Paul wrote in one part of the story, he goes, guys, stop getting drunk on the communion wine. Like, seriously, we're having some, we're having some real issues. Like, you look at the issues the church has today, and you're like, man, this is like nothing compared to Corinth. And then what we really looked at last week was there was one group of Christians. And they went around, and they started telling all the other Christians, and they, said, well, they asked, like, what, do you, what gifts do you have? Tell us what talents you have. Tell us what gifts you have. And what they would do is they would categorize Christians into important and unimportant based on their gift. And Paul wrote this section of this letter that we looked at last week. And the, the, the whole thrust of this section was pretty much this. That without your gift, the church is incomplete. And without using your gift, you're incomplete. Paul was so mad at these people that, that looked at followers of Jesus and categorized them as important or unimportant because Paul said, no, no, every single person in the church is important. The church is not a meeting, the church is the people. And so every single person is important and every single follower of Jesus has a gift and it's worth knowing about. And last week we asked a question as we wrapped up the night. And the question was this, we said, uh, what we want you to do is we want you to Ask three or five or ten or two people this question. What's something I do that appears easy but is difficult for you? What's something that I do when you look at, when you, when you look at me or when you look at your friend that, that they do and you think, man, that is so easy. It just comes so naturally for them. If I were to try and do that, it would seem difficult. Because oftentimes when we try and identify gifts in people, I don't know about you, but for me that's a real struggle. I'm like, oh man, like... I know you really well, but all of a sudden, like, I'm having a mind blank. Like, I don't know what you're gifted at. But if you were to ask me to identify, hey, what, hey, what do I do that, that seems really easy for me but is difficult for you? I, I would be able to identify that straight away. Maybe for some of you, what you see in other people is, is you see the fact that they can just have a conversation, make someone feel at ease straight away. Maybe you're not one of those people. That's really difficult for you. Maybe on the other hand, maybe you're one of those people uh, and you see people and, and they just uh, sense when something's not right with someone. And all of a sudden they're able to have a conversation, they're able to find out what's going on, they're able to invite them out, they're able to help them out. And you're like, man, I wish I had that ability. Like when I walk past people, like I'm not even, I don't even know, I wouldn't even have a clue what's going on in their life or if something was off. And so we ask you just ask some people to identify that and see if you can identify a theme running through that this week. And if you didn't have an opportunity, that's okay. You can do that this week. You can kind of take this, uh, this week's kind of message and apply it this week. Or maybe you can just start to think for it a little bit quickly to yourself. Like, what, what would people identify as the things that I'm good at that maybe are difficult for them? Because as we go tonight, the big idea or, or the, the idea that we're going to talk around is this. It's one thing to know your gift but it's another thing to know how to show your gift. It's one thing to be talented at something. It's one thing to know that you have a particular skill in a particular area, but it's another thing entirely to know how to apply that gift in the appropriate way. We've all seen and we've all encountered people who are incredibly talented, but you would not want to be their friend. 
You would not want to be their friend because they're so arrogant. They're so rude. They've got the gift and they know they're good. And that kind of exudes that confidence and they kind of make you feel like you're lesser because you're not on their level. And so it's one thing to know your gift, but it's another thing entirely to know how to show your gift. And I thought we'd start the conversation tonight on a, on a level playing field, something we can all relate to. Because at one time or another in our life, we've all received advice. We've all either asked for advice or we've all been given advice. Maybe, maybe it's in different fields. Maybe for you, you started a new job at a new workplace, and so you needed advice. You're like, can, can you kind of help me? Maybe you talked to someone who'd previously been in that role, or maybe you talked to your co-workers around you and said, hey, I need some advice. How do I do this? Maybe at work, you kind of got a new software in and you weren't sure how to operate it, or you kind of started a new project in a different industry and you weren't sure how to go about it, and you're kind of like, hey, I, I need some advice. Maybe it was at school or uni, and there's always that really smart person in the class. Or there's that person you know, the grade above you, who's done the assignment before, and so you go and ask them for some advice. Can you help me? Usually at school, the advice looks like, can you give me your assignment and I'll copy it? But you ask them for some advice. Maybe for you, it's, it's relationally. Whether that's in your marriage, whether that's in your friendship groups, whether that's like whether you should go on that Tinder date or not, like you don't know. So you've, you've got someone that you talk to relationally. Or maybe you're one of those people, you've got like a mentor or a special person, you wouldn't call them a mentor, but a person you look up to, and, and when you've got a big decision, whether it's around a changing a career, whether it's maybe a decision about who to date, or a decision about uh, what university course, you always go to this person, and you always grab a coffee, and, and you always say, hey, I've got, I've got some questions, and I need, I need your advice. There's really kind of two groups of people that give advice, isn't there, if we're, if we're uh, thinking back through it. There's people who give advice when they're asked, and then there's people who give advice when they're not asked. And it's the second group of people, the people who give advice when they're not asked, that I kind of wanted to focus on tonight a little bit. Because you can tell these people right off the bat, the people who give you advice when, when it, it, that you didn't ask them and you don't want it, are always people that they lead in. They've got some lead-in phrases that they like to, to use. One of their lead-in phrases, I know it's none of my business, but... No, it's none of your business, no but. <laughs> I know it's none of my business, but could I, just, could I just give you some advice? Look, I overheard what you were saying over there. I was just over here, but I could... Over here, I was actually listening in. And I was just, I was just wondering if I could give you some advice. Or, or there's, a, there's always that person, uh, maybe, maybe you're at an event, you're at a function, and, and someone's maybe giving a talk or someone's lecturing, but there's always that one person that feels like they need to give advice to the person giving the seminar, give advice to the teacher at the front, like you see this at university all the time, like someone's always got to give advice. Well, see, what you're saying is great, but in my experience, can I just add that? And everyone in there in the, in the room is like, no, you cannot just add that. This is the 17th time you've had to add that today. And what's interesting is that when people don't have the emotional or, or the relational bank account with us, when people are not at a level with us relationally that they can give us advice, we always walk away from that conversation with a little bit of a bitter taste in our mouth. Because whether the advice was really, really good or whether the advice was really, really bad, I don't know if you've ever walked away from a situation where someone has given you unwarranted, unasked for advice and you didn't really know them that well, but the one thing you leave that situation with is not the advice, but you leave thinking and you leave feeling that 
that person could handle my situation so much better than me. And it makes you feel kind of like you're not handling the situation as well as you should have. Because when people give you advice and it's not asked for, what it communicates is, if this was me in your situation, I could do it better than you. Your life, I could do it better than you. And, and all of a sudden, we forget the advice, whether it's good or bad, and we remember how the person giving the advice made us feel. Because it's true, and I think we can all agree that, on this, that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People can give you the best piece of advice. But if you know that they don't know you and they don't know your situation and, and you know that they maybe probably don't care about you, it doesn't matter how good the advice is, you're not going to listen to it. And if that's true with advice, regardless of how good the advice is, you may not listen to it, isn't that true when it comes to followers of Jesus? You may be the most gifted, most talented person most talented follower of Jesus. But if you don't know the way to show your gift, then eventually it just keeps landing on deaf ears. And so tonight, what I want to do is I want to address that. I want to address the idea of how do we as followers of Jesus learn how to apply our gifts? Not just know our gifts, but know the best way to show our gifts so that when we interact with people, that people will leave feeling like we care about them, knowing that we actually care about them. And in the letter I mentioned earlier that we looked at last week that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he had this section on, on that idea that every single person is important. And then immediately following that, he writes one of the most famous pieces of literature that the world knows. In fact, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you would have, you would have heard this piece of literature at some point in your life, you may not have even realized that Paul wrote it. It most commonly comes up at weddings or when anything, uh, when people have to do with love or maybe they're renewing their vows. This um, piece of literature is never far from people's mind. And Paul links it and follows it and talks about how we apply our gifts. So we're going to jump in and Paul sort of, he's been talking about gifts for a while and then he finishes this gift section and ties into the next. He says this, he says, but let me show you a way of life that is best of all. Not let me show you a gift, but let me show you a way of life. In other words, let me show you a way to apply your gift that is best of all. And then he starts to write this. He says, if I, if I, it's personal for Paul. He says that right at the start, if I, in other words, not, hey, I read this in a book once, hey, I was talking to someone the other day and they told me this and so now I'm going to tell you, no, no, no. Paul is, Paul is saying, this is not theoretical for me. This is not something I heard once from someone and now I'm telling you because it seemed like good advice. Paul is saying, this is something I live every single day. This is something I've lived and I've learned through. And so Paul, for Paul, this advice is personal. And he says, if I could speak all the languages of earth, that's about 6,500 languages, Paul's saying, if I could speak all the languages of earth, and, and the Corinthians are like, wow, it's a lot of languages. Like, that's pretty impressive. And then he kind of, Paul, kind of, it's a bit of a hyperbole. He takes it to another level. He says, and of angels. In other words, if I had the gift, if I had the talent, not just to speak every single language on earth, but some of the languages that, that angels speak, because Paul's like, I'm guessing that the angels communicate. Like, I've never really been there, but I'm guessing that they could communicate. So not only can I speak all the languages of earth, but I can um, speak all the languages of heaven. 
And then he says, but didn't love others. If I could do all that, but I didn't love. And they would have been, the, the Greeks, or the, the Corinthian people would have been sitting there and I would have been waiting and they would have said, hang on a minute, time out. That word that you use for love, Paul, that's the wrong word, isn't it? Because in, in our English language, we really only have one word for love. And then we do things like we put really, really in front of it. Or I love you and we, we talk about who we love, like I love chips, like I love Doritos and... The Greek language had about five or six different ways and different words for the word love. Different ways that we could understand that word, and they all get translated into our English word, love. And the Corinthians would have been sitting there, and what they would have been expecting to hear was this Greek word, philia, which meant brotherly love. This word, philia, they would have been like, whoa, 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 Paul, Paul, don't you mean philia? Like, you said another word for love. Don't you mean feel like brotherly love? Like, we're all happy family, and when we all love each other, we kind of like put our arms around each other at the campfire and sing kumbaya. Don't you mean that kind of love? Because the word that came up, and the word that Paul wrote was the word agape, which was completely different to a feeling. This word agape meant a deliberate decision of the will. It was a deliberate act. In other words, what Paul was saying was, if I could speak all these languages, not of just of earth, but of heaven, but I didn't make a deliberate decision to love others, if I didn't predetermine to love the people that I come into contact with, he says, then I would be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I could have these incredible talents, but if before I applied these talents, I hadn't made a deliberate decision to love, I would just be some really obnoxious sound in the background that everyone gets irritated about. And then he, he gives a second example. He said, if I had the gift of prophecy, in other words, if I could open some of the, the scriptures that, uh, that the people read and if I knew all about them, if I understood all of God's secret plans and I possessed all knowledge, in other words, if I was the smartest person that had ever walked the earth, if I knew everything that there was to know about anything, I'm like the walking encyclopedia, you could come to me, you could ask me anything... Paul says, and, uh, and if I had so much faith that I could move mountains. In other words, if all this information, if all this knowledge pointed, to me to, uh, pointed towards the fact that God existed, and through that faith, understanding all of God's plans, it gave me the faith to move mountains. People would look at me and go, wow, that guy's so faithful, that guy, look at the stuff that that guy can do, because he knows exactly what God's up to. He says, if I could do all that, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. That's massive. Paul's saying that he would be nothing. This is the greatest church planter, the greatest evangelist, one of the greatest communicators apart from Jesus in the Christian faith to ever walk the earth. And this guy says, if I didn't love others, it doesn't matter how smart I am, it doesn't matter how much I know, but I would be nothing. And then he kind of finishes this out. He finishes uh, this, this last section out. Because what he's really trying to drive home is the idea that your spiritual gift is so important. Yes, your spiritual gift is important, but without love, ultimately it's useless. You can know your gift, but if you don't know the way to apply it, if you don't know how to love, then it is useless. And you know this, and I know this in our own lives, right? The people that have impacted you the most, the people that you look back on and you think, I would always go to them for advice. 
I would always go to them. Whenever I'm in need, I would turn to that person. Chances are you don't turn to them primarily because they're extraordinarily gifted. You turn to them because of the way they've prioritized you, the way they've loved you, the way they've cared for you, and their gifts are secondary. You admire their gifts, but you admire them because of the way that they've prioritized you first. And then Paul kind of draws this whole section to a conclusion, because he knows that there are some people out there thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm not super smart, and I'm not bilingual, so I guess I'm off the hook with this one. I'm kind of one of those people that I like to do a whole heap of stuff. And Paul writes this last part to those people. He says, if I gave up everything I had to the poor and even sacrificed my body, if I had a whole heap of money, if I gave it away, if, if uh, I was beaten for my faith, if I, if I gave, you know, I sacrificed my body, he says, sure, I could boast about it. I could tell people that I did some cool stuff. I could get people to look in on me and go, look at Paul, Paul's incredible. Look at all the great stuff Paul is doing. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Paul's saying, if you're one of those people that's trying to earn God's love or point other people to God through how good you are and how charitable you are and how generous you are, Paul says, ultimately, you're going to gain nothing nothing because that's not what it's about because paul what he's saying in this whole section is that if you're a follower of jesus that your gift is ultimately not for you your gift is ultimately not for you but your gift is from god for others because when we think about our gifts and when we make it about ourselves, it's really, it's really difficult to love others because it's always about us. So when someone gets in the road, when someone blocks the limelight from us, when someone prevents us from doing what we want to do, we have a hard time to love because it's about us. And Paul's saying, but when you understand that your gift is from God and your gift is not even for you, but if you're a follower of Jesus, that your gift is meant to point people to others, then all of a sudden this changes the dynamic. In fact, love... Paul would say is what validates your gift. Loving others is what validates your gift if you're a follower of Jesus. Because if the purpose of your gift, and if the purpose of my gift, and if the purpose of our gift is to point people to God, to show people God's love, if God is love, then we have no option but to apply our gift through in love and through love. Because the bottom line, if you take nothing else away from tonight, the bottom line is this, that love is the defining characteristic of the Jesus movement. When the early church first began, love was the defining characteristic of the Jesus movement. And I understand that maybe some of you are sitting there and you're like, okay, that's great, but how do we do that? Because that's really, that's really tough. That is really, really tough to love someone when they cut me off in traffic at 7 a.m. in the morning and I haven't had my coffee yet. <laughs> like, it is really difficult to love all the time. And, and what does that even look like? How would we even begin to do that? How would we even begin to be the church all the time? And we just got one thing as we close up this series. It's called For, for Monday here at Beyond because we believe that it should be helpful for you for the rest of the week. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't have to do anything with this, but I think it might be helpful for you just as a little exercise as well. But just for the next seven days, if you're a follower of Jesus, 
either at the start of your day for 10 minutes, reflect on the day that's been, or at the end of your day for 10 minutes, reflect on the day that's just passed, and ask this question. Today, I acted with love by. And start to think through some of those interactions that you've had. The people at school, the people at uni, your family, people around the dinner table at night, the person you bumped into at the coffee shop or the petrol station, the person that you, when you were in a rush in the supermarket, like shoulder checked you when you weren't paying attention and you kind of like gave them a dirty look and they were standing still but you ran into them and they gave you a dirty look and then you walked around going, what's their problem all day? Like, how did you act in your interactions that day? And begin to ask this question, did I, where did I act with love today? Because the second we start to ask that question, we begin to see the places we act with love, but also the places we don't act with love. And in those places that you identify, you think, oh, I didn't really love in that situation. I want you to ask, what are you leveraging? What are you leveraging in those situations? If you didn't act with love, if you didn't leverage love in that situation, what did you leverage? Did you leverage your pride? Did you leverage your ego? Did you leverage bitterness or anger or rage? Well, what was it that you leveraged? And I, I totally get that some of, some of you are sitting here tonight and you've been a follower of Jesus for, for your whole life or maybe you've just become a follower of Jesus and you're sitting here and you're like, Chris, that is great, but isn't that a little idealistic? Come on, just love everybody. Like, that's, that's really, that's, isn't that a little idealistic? Why would I even try to do that? If I can never get there, why would I even bother trying? And Paul wraps up this entire section, the love chapter of Corinthians, with this. He says, three things will last forever. That's a long time. Three things. Out of everything that exists, three things will last forever. What are they, Paul? He says, faith, hope, and love will last forever forever. Then he goes on and he says, and the greatest of these is love. And not filial love, but agape love, a deliberate decision, a deliberate act of the will. The greatest of these is love. So sure, as followers of Jesus, we can leverage pride, we can leverage anger, we can leverage all those things, but why would you want to leverage something that's ultimately going to fade away? And why would you want to leverage something as difficult as it may be in the situation when he said or she said or they did and you didn't, as difficult as it it may be, why would you want to leverage something that will ultimately cease to exist? And I get that in the moment it's hard. And I get that in the moment, because of the relationship that you have or the way that you know, you're saying to me, you're like arguing with me in your head and you're like, Chris, you don't understand. It's not that easy. It's not that easy. I would have to sacrifice something to leverage love. I would have to sacrifice something in my workplace to leverage love. I would have to sacrifice something in my family to leverage love. If I was to really love this person, I'd have to give up something. But if love and faith and hope are the three things that are going to remain, are you really sacrificing something? Because giving up something better now for, uh, sorry, giving up something better now for something better later is not a sacrifice. It's an investment. So are you really sacrificing or are you investing 
into something that will last forever? Are you investing into something that someone will walk away from that conversation and think, wow, I don't really agree with them. I don't really agree with what they believe, but man, they didn't leverage what other people leveraged. They leveraged something completely different. They leveraged love. And when you take the time this week, and when I take the time this week to reflect and really ask that question, today I acted with love by, and we begin to see those areas and those relationships where we leverage something else other than love, we have the opportunity to change. We have the opportunity to actually begin to be the church. We have the opportunity that when people experience us and interact with us outside of the four walls of this room, that what they experience is the defining characteristic of what the Jesus movement should always have been known by. Love. And pretty soon, if the church begins to be known and people that you know begin to know the church by that one defining characteristic, pretty soon the church becomes this word, irresistible. Because what could people possibly have to resist about a community of people that love on them and are defined by love. They might not agree with us. They might not come to our, our gathering, but they wouldn't resist us. They wouldn't hate us. They wouldn't want nothing to do with us. In fact, they would look in and they would say, we're glad that church is here. We don't believe what they believe. We don't, we don't get that whole Jesus thing, but we are glad that they're a part of our community. We hope they never leave. Because the way they love, the way they care for people, it's something we've never experienced before. Our community would be worse off if they left. And the church begins to become irresistible. And if you're a follower of Jesus tonight, you have the opportunity. And I have the opportunity. And together we have the opportunity to make the church irresistible again. To let the church and let the Jesus movement be defined by the characteristics Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter that Paul wrote nearly 2,000 years ago. And as difficult as it can be sometimes to leverage love, to leverage that decision to love, Lord, help us to do that this week. And not just do that this week, begin to do it this week, but carry it with us for the rest of our lives. Because ultimately, you made a decision to love us. When we turned our back on you, you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross to restore our relationship to you, to forgive our sins. And Lord, we pray that because of the way that you have loved us, that we would make a deliberate decision to love our community. That love would be what the Jesus movement, what beyond is defined by and that people would see this place as irresistible and that through the love that you've given to us and the love that we share that people would come into a relationship with Jesus in this place and we pray these things in your son's name Amen